Chapter 2 of the Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geoffrey DeSena, Cord Lane. Chapter 2, Lecture 2, The Familial Constellations. Ladies and gentlemen, as you have seen, there are manifold ways in which the association experiment may be employed in practical psychology. I should like to speak to you today about another use of this experiment, which is primarily of theoretical significance. My pupil, Miss First, M.D., made the following researches. She applied the association experiment to 24 families, consisting altogether of 100 test persons. The resulting material amounted to 22,200 associations. This material was elaborated in the following manner. Fifteen separate groups were formed according to logical linguistic standards, and the associations were arranged as follows. 1. Coordination. Husband, 6.5. Wife, 0.5. Difference, 6. 2. Sub- and superordination. Husband, 7. Wife, null. Difference, 7. 3. Contrast. Husband null, wife null, difference null. 4. Predicate expressing a personal judgment. Husband 8.5, wife 95.0, difference 86.5. 5. Simple predicate. Husband 21.0, wife 3.5, difference 17.5. 6. Relations of the verb to the subject or complement. Husband, 15.5, wife, 0.5, difference, 15.0. 7. Designation of time, etc. Husband, 11.0, wife, null, difference, 11.0. 8. Definition. Husband, 11.0, wife, null, difference, 11.0. 9. Coexistence. Husband, 1.5, wife, null, difference, 1.5. 10. Identity. Husband, 0.5. Wife, 0.5. Difference, null. 11. Motor-speech combination. Husband, 12.0. Wife, null. Difference, 12.0. 12. Composition of words. Husband, null. Wife, null. Difference, null. 13. Completion of words. Husband, null. Wife, null. Difference, null. 14. Clang associations. Husband, null. Wife, null. Difference, null. 15. Defective reactions. Husband, null. Wife, null. Difference, null. Total difference, 173.5. Average difference, 173.5 divided by 15 equals 11.5. As can be seen from this example, I utilize the difference to demonstrate the degree of the analogy. In order to find a basis for the sum of the resemblance, I have calculated the difference among all Dr. First's test persons, not related among themselves, by comparing every female test person with all the other unrelated females. The same has been done for the male test persons. The most marked difference is found in those cases where the two test persons compared have no associative quality in common. All groups are calculated in percentages, the greatest difference possible being 200 divided by 15 equals 13.3%. 1. The average difference of male unrelated test persons is 5.9%, and that of females of the same group is 6%. 2. 
the average difference between male-related test persons is 4.1%, and that between female-related test persons is 3.8%. From these numbers, we see that relatives show a tendency to agreement in the reaction type. 3. Difference between fathers and children, 4.2. Difference between mothers and children, 3.5. The reaction types of the children come nearer to the type of the mother than to the father. 4. Difference between fathers and their sons, 3.1. Difference between fathers and their daughters, 4.9. Difference between mothers and their sons, 4.7. Difference between mothers and their daughters, 3.0. 5. Difference between brothers, 4.7. Difference between sisters, 5.1. If the married sisters are omitted from the comparison, we get the following result. Difference of the unmarried sisters equals 3.8. These observations show distinctly that marriage destroys more or less the original agreement, as the husband belongs to a different type. Difference between unmarried brothers equals 4.8. Marriage seems to exert no influence on the association forms in men. Nevertheless, the material which we have at our disposal is not as yet enough to allow us to draw definite conclusions. 6. Difference between husband and wife, 4.7. This number sums up inadequately the different and very unequal values. That is to say, there are some cases which show extreme difference and some which show marked concordance. The similarity of the associations is often very extraordinary. It will reproduce here the associations of a mother and daughter, given in the form stimulus word, mother response, daughter response. Stimulus word, to pay attention, mother, diligent pupil, daughter, pupil. Stimulus word, law, mother, command of God. Daughter, Moses. Stimulus word. Dear, mother, child, daughter, father and mother. Stimulus word. Great, mother, God, daughter, father. Stimulus word. Potato. Mother, bulbous root, daughter, bulbous root. Stimulus word. Family. Mother, many persons. Daughter, five persons. Stimulus word. Strange. Mother, traveler. Daughter, traveller. Stimulus word. Brother, mother, dear to me. Daughter, dear. Stimulus word. To kiss. Mother, mother. Daughter, mother. Stimulus word. Burn. Mother, great pain. Daughter, painful. Stimulus word. Door. Mother, wide. Daughter, big. Stimulus word. Hay. Mother, dry. Daughter, dry. Stimulus word, month. Mother, many days. Daughter, 31 days. Stimulus word, air. Mother, cool. Daughter, moist. Stimulus word, call. Mother, sooty. Daughter, black. Stimulus word, fruit. Mother, sweet. Daughter, sweet. Stimulus word, marry. Mother, happy child. Daughter, child. One might indeed think that in this experiment, where the full scope is given to chance, individuality would become a factor of the utmost importance, and that therefore one might expect a very great diversity and lawlessness of associations. But as we see, the opposite is the case. Thus, the daughter lives contentedly in the same circle of ideas as her mother, not only in her thought but in her form of expression. Indeed, she even uses the same words. What could be regarded as more inconsequent, inconstant, and lawless than a fancy, a rapidly passing thought? It is not lawlessness, however, neither is it free but closely determined, within the limits of the milieu.
If, therefore, even the superficial and manifestly most inconsequent formations of the intellect are altogether subject to the milieu constellation, what must we not expect for the more important conditions of the mind, for the emotions, wishes, hopes, and intentions? Let us consider a concrete example. The mother is 45 years old and the daughter 16 years. Both have very distinct predicate type expressing personal judgment. Both differ from the father in the most striking manner. The father is a drunkard and a demoralized creature. We can thus readily understand that his wife experiences an emotional voidness which she naturally betrays by her enhanced predicate type. The same causes cannot, however, operate in the case of the daughter, for, in the first place, she is not married to a drunkard, and, in the second, life with all its hopes and promises still lies before her. It is distinctly unnatural for the daughter to show an extreme predicate type expressing personal judgment. She responds to the stimuli of the environment just like her mother. But whereas in the mother the type is in a way a natural consequence of her unhappy condition of life, this condition is entirely lacking in the daughter. The daughter simply imitates the mother. She merely appears like the mother. Let us consider what this can signify for a young girl. If a young girl reacts to the world like an old woman, disappointed in life, this at once shows unnaturalness and constraint. But more serious consequences are possible. As you know, the predicate type is a manifestation of intensive emotions. The emotions are always involved. Thus, we cannot prevent ourselves from responding inwardly, at least to the feelings and passions of our immediate environment. We allow ourselves to be infected and carried away by it. Originally, the effects and their physical manifestations had a biological significance, i.e. they were a protective mechanism for the individual and the whole herd. If we manifest emotions, we can with certainty expect to receive emotions in return. That is the feeling of the predicate type. What the 45-year-old woman lacks in emotions, i.e. in love in her marriage relations she seeks to obtain in the outside world, and, for that reason, she is an ardent participant in the Christian science movement. If the daughter imitates the situation, she copies her mother. She seeks to obtain emotions from the outside. But for a girl of 16, such an emotional state is, to say the least, quite dangerous. Like her mother, she reacts to her environment as a sufferer, soliciting sympathy. Such an emotional state is no longer dangerous in the mother, but for obvious reasons is quite dangerous in the daughter. Once freed from her father and mother, she will be like her mother, i.e. she will be a suffering woman craving for inner gratification. She will thus be exposed to the great danger of falling a victim to brutality and of marrying a brute and inebriate like her father. This conception is of importance in the consideration of the influence of environment and education. The example shows what passes over from the mother to the child. It is not the good and pious precepts, nor is it any, nor is it any other inculcation of pedagogic truths that have a moulding influence upon the character of the developing child, but what most influences him is the peculiarly affective state which is totally unknown to his parents and educators. The concealed discord between the parents, the secret worry, the repressed hidden wishes, all these produce in the individual a certain affective state with its objective signs which slowly but surely, though unconsciously, works its way into the child's mind, producing therein the same conditions and hence the same reactions to external stimuli. We know the depressing effect mournful and melancholic persons have upon us. A restless and nervous individual infects his surroundings with unrest and dissatisfaction, a grumbler with his discontent, etc. 
Since grown-up persons are so sensitive to surrounding influences, we should certainly expect this to be even more noticeable among children, whose minds are as soft and plastic as wax. The father and mother impress deeply into the child's mind the seal of their personality. The more sensitive and moldable the child, the deeper is the impression. Thus, things that are never even spoken about are reflected in the child. The child imitates the gesture, and just as the gesture of the parent is the expression of an emotional state, so in turn the gesture gradually produces in the child a similar feeling, as it feels itself, so to speak, into the gesture. Just as the parents adapt themselves to the world, so does the child. At the age of puberty, when it begins to free itself from the spell of the family, it enters into life with, so to say, a surface adaptation entirely in keeping with that of the father and mother. The frequent and often very deep depressions of puberty emanate from this. They are symptoms which are rooted in the difficulty of new adjustment. The youthful person at first tries to separate himself as much as possible from his family. He may even estrange himself from it, but inwardly this only ties him the more firmly to the parental image. I cite the case of a young neurotic who ran away from his parents. He was estranged from and almost hostile to them, but he admitted to me that he possessed a special sanctum. It was a strong box containing his old childhood books, old dried flowers, stones, and even small bottles of water from the well at his home and from a river along which he walked with his parents, etc. The first attempts to assume friendship and love are constellated in the strongest manner possible by the relation to the parents, and here one can usually observe how powerful are the influences of the familiar constellations. It is not rare, for instance, for a healthy man whose mother was hysterical to marry a hysteric, or for the daughter of an alcoholic to choose an alcoholic for her husband. I was once consulted by an intelligent and educated young woman of 26 who suffered from a peculiar symptom. She thought that her eyes now and then took on a strange expression which exerted a disagreeable influence on men. If she then looked at a man and he became self-conscious, turned away and said something rapidly to his neighbour, at which both were either embarrassed or inclined to laugh, the patient was convinced that her look excited indecent thoughts in the men. It was impossible to convince her of the falsity of her conviction. This symptom immediately aroused in me the suspicion that I dealt with a case of paranoia rather than with a neurosis. But, as was shown only three days later by the further course of the treatment, I was mistaken, for the symptom promptly disappeared after it had been explained by analysis. It originated in the following manner. The lady had a lover who deserted her in a very marked manner. She felt utterly forsaken. She withdrew from all society and pleasure and entertained suicidal ideas. In her seclusion, there accumulated unadmitted and repressed erotic wishes, which she unconsciously projected on men whenever she was in their company. This gave rise to the conviction that her look excited erotic wishes in men. Further investigation showed that her deserting lover was a lunatic, which she had not apparently observed. I expressed my surprise at her unsuitable choice, and added that she must have had a certain predilection for loving mentally abnormal persons. This she denied, stating that she had once before been engaged to be married to a normal man. He too deserted her, and on further investigation it was found that he too had been in an insane asylum shortly before, another lunatic. This seemed to me to confirm with sufficient certainty my belief that she had an unconscious tendency to choose insane persons. Whence originated this strange taste? Her father was an eccentric character, and in later years entirely estranged from his family. Her whole love had therefore been turned away from her father to a brother eight years her senior. 
Him she loved and honoured as a father, and this brother became hopelessly insane at the age of fourteen. That was apparently the model from which the patient could never free herself, after which she chose her lovers, and through which she had to become unhappy. Her neurosis, which gave the impression of insanity, probably originated from this infantile model. We must take into consideration that we are dealing in this case with a highly educated and intelligent lady, who did not pass carelessly over her mental experiences, who indeed reflected much over her unhappiness, without, however, having any idea whence her misfortune originated. There are things which unconsciously appear to us as a matter of course, and it is for this reason that we do not see them truly, but attribute everything to the so-called congenital character. I could cite any number of examples of this kind. Every patient furnishes contributions to the subject of the determination of destiny through the influence of the familiar milieu. In every neurotic we see how the constellation of the infantile milieu influences not only the character of the neurosis, but also life's destiny, even in its minute details. The unhappy choice of a profession and innumerable matrimonial failures can be traced to this constellation. There are, however, cases where the profession has been well chosen, where the husband or wife leaves nothing to be desired, and where still the person does not feel well but works and lives under constant difficulties. Such cases often appear under the guise of chronic neurasthenia. Here the difficulty is due to the fact that the mind is unconsciously split into two parts of divergent tendencies which are impeding each other. One part lives with the husband or with the profession, while the other lives unconsciously in the past with the father or mother. I have treated a lady who, after suffering many years from a severe neurosis, merged into a dementia precox. The neurotic affection began with her marriage. This lady's husband was kind, educated, well-to-do, and in every respect suitable for her. His character showed nothing that would in any way interfere with a happy marriage. The marriage was nevertheless unhappy, all congenial companionship being excluded because the wife was neurotic. The important heuristic axiom of every psychoanalysis reads as follows. If a person develops a neurosis, this neurosis contains the counter-argument against the relation of the patient to the individual with whom he is most intimately connected. A neurosis in the husband loudly proclaims that he has intensive resistances and contrary tendencies against his wife. If the wife has a neurosis, she has a tendency which diverges from her husband. If the person is unmarried, the neurosis is then directed against the lover or the sweetheart or against the parents. Every neurotic naturally strives against this relentless formulation of the content of his neurosis, and he often refuses to recognize it at any cost, but still it is always justified. To be sure, the conflict is not on the surface, but must generally be revealed through a painstaking psychoanalysis. The history of our patient reads as follows. The father had a powerful personality. She was his favourite daughter, and entertained for him a boundless veneration. At the age of seventeen, she for the first time fell in love with a young man. At that time, she twice dreamt the same dream, the impression of which never left her in all her later years. She even imputed a mystic significance to it, and often recalled it with religious dread. In the dream, she saw a tall, masculine figure with a very beautiful white beard. At the sight, she was permeated with a feeling of awe and delight as if she experienced the presence of God himself. This dream made the deepest impression on her, and she was constrained to think of it again and again. The love affair of that period proved to be one of a little warmth, and was soon given up. Later, the patient married her present husband. 
Though she loved her husband, she was led continually to compare him with her deceased father. This comparison always proved unfavorable to her husband. Whatever the husband said, intended, or did was subjected to this standard and always with the same result. My father would have done all this better and differently. Our patient's life with her husband was not happy. She could neither respect nor love him sufficiently. She was inwardly dissatisfied. She gradually developed a fervent piety, and at the same time violent hysterical symptoms supervened. She began by going into raptures now over this and now over that clergyman. She was looking everywhere for a spiritual friend, and estranged herself more and more from her husband. The mental trouble manifested itself about ten years after marriage. In her diseased state, she refused to have anything to do with her husband and child. She imagined herself pregnant by another man. In brief, the resistances against her husband, which hitherto had been laboriously repressed, came out quite openly, and among other things manifested themselves in insults of the gravest kind directed against him. In this case, we see how a neurosis appeared, as it were, at the moment of marriage, i.e., this neurosis expresses the counter-argument against the husband. What is the counter-argument? The counter-argument is the father of the patient, for she verified her belief daily that her husband was not the equal of her father. When the patient first fell in love, there had appeared a symptom in the form of an extremely impressive dream or vision. She saw the man with the very beautiful white beard. Who was this man? On directing her attention to the beautiful white beard, she immediately recognized the phantom. It was, of course, her father. Thus, every time the patient merged into a love affair, the picture of her father inopportunely appeared and prevented her from adjusting herself psychologically to her husband. I purposely chose this case as an illustration because it is simple, obvious, and quite typical of many marriages which are crippled through the neurosis of the wife. The cause of the unhappiness always lies in a too firm attachment to the parents. The infantile relationship has not been given up. We find here one of the most important tasks of pedagogy, namely, the solution of the problem how to free the growing individual from his unconscious attachments to the influences of the infantile milieu, in such a manner that he may retain whatever there is in it that is suitable and reject whatever is unsuitable. To solve this difficult question on the part of the child seems to me impossible at present. We know as yet too little about the child's emotional processes. The first and only real contribution to the literature on this subject has in fact appeared during the present year. It is the analysis of a five-year-old boy published by Freud. The difficulties on the part of the child are very great. They should not, however, be so great on the part of the parents. In many ways, the parents could manage the love of children more carefully, more indulgently, and more intelligently. The sins committed against favorite children by the undue love of the parents could perhaps be avoided through a wider knowledge of the child's mind. For many reasons, I find it impossible to say anything of general validity concerning the bringing up of children as it is affected by this problem. We are as yet very far from general prescriptions and rules. Indeed, we are still in the realm of casuistry. Unfortunately, our knowledge of the finer mental processes in the child is so meagre that we are not yet in any position to say where the greatest trouble lies, whether in the parents, in the child, or in the conception of the milieu. Only psychoanalyses of the kind that Professor Freud has published in the Jahrbuch 1909 will help us out of this difficulty. Such comprehensive and profound observations should act as a strong inducement to all teachers to occupy themselves with Freud's psychology. This psychology offers more values for practical pedagogy than the physiological psychology of the present. End of Lecture 2